0: Alright, so this is uh our second lesson. We there's handouts, I think, in uh towards the back. Okay. So last time we went through many of kind of God's initial some of the characteristics of who God is. And uh if you're looking we kind of review, um we had God with spirits. That's the first one. He's omnipotent, All right? The omnis. I think you know, omnipotent, omnipresence, and omniscient, and we were, I think, ending with talking about God being eternal. Okay, we, we're on uh, page five. I think in that region we were talking about God being eternal, and uh, so I thought we would start with. Um, this fact that God is infinite, right? So it's another way in which God is different, different than us, um, completely different than us. So he's infinite and unlimited, not limited by, or confined to the universe he created. He's independent of time, things, (coughs) beings, space, and although he has occasionally placed limitations upon himself. So that's going to be one thing that we'll see is that the only thing that is limiting of God is God Himself. So He is His own, um, gives Himself, self, His own limitations. So let's let's read through some of these uh, some of these verses and kind of bring out how that comes about. So, First um, Kings eight twenty seven. I want to read that. Ryan, you got this. First, uh, what page are we? we are on page six maybe. Uh. Are we there? First King. All right. First Kings eight twenty seven.
1: Yep. But
2: will God indeed dwell on the earth behold heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain you how
1: much less this house which I have built
0: okay and so we see like the highest heaven so what would it what do they mean by the highest heaven what do you think that mean there like what, what what term would they use heaven for yeah like space yeah so they've had like, Sometimes they would talk about the sky as the heavens, right? Is what we we, had, we would use all the different terms: like the sky, the atmosphere, outer space, right? So, and then he talks about the the highest heaven, so the furthest heaven, as far as we can go out. And what do we see? What does he say about the highest heaven? Yeah. So there's there's no limit to there's there's no way to can contain God. And then uh, Jeremiah twenty three. Okay, Andrew, you got that one.
2: Am I a God who is near, declares the Lord, And not a God far off? Can a man hide himself in hiding places, so I do not see him, declares the Lord? Do I not fill the heavens and the earth, declares the Lord?
0: Yeah, so the idea there is, I think, not just that he is infinitely out, outward, but he's filling in, in every space, right? He's. What are the spaces that he's saying that he can fill, specifically here? Heavens and earth. The heavens and the earth, right? Even the man that seeks to hide hide in some place. God fills that space as well. And then Isaiah 66, 1. Got
2: it, <clears throat> Thus says the Lord, Heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. Where then is a house you could build for me? And where is a place that I may rest?
0: Yeah, so oh, we have uh, many Old Testament um, passages here that give... That imagery, that heaven, the heavens and the earth are filled with God and with His presence. So, um, how would you tie this to? Let's look at the second commandment here: "You shall not make for yourself an idol, or any likeness of what's in heaven, or heaven above, or on earth beneath, or in the water under the earth." Right. So, why why does that make sense in light of God being infinite?
3: Almost like trying to contain God in a thing. Mm-hmm.
0: He's uncontainable. Yeah. Yeah. So no matter what that thing happens to be, right? It's infinitely less than him. Mm-hmm. Right. So that's a that's a it's one of those things where um, we don't have we don't have any real concept of something you can we can't see infinity, mm-hmm. we can't measure infinity. And so there's a place at which we are kind of being pushed up against our boundaries when we try and... W- we, we can describe it in some way as being without end, without bound, but it's, it's difficult for us to, to conceive of that. Right? I think in one sense, you could think about um, that unboundedness too in terms of his, his um, many of his other moral attributes in that his, his, his love, his perfection, his mercy, his grace, that it's, it has that infinite quality to it where it's far beyond. Um, Let's turn to um, Isaiah. There's one other passage I want to read, Isaiah uh, 55. So starting in verse 6, Isaiah is giving a call, or starting in verse 1, come everyone who thirsts, Um, and then down in verse 6, seek the Lord while he may be found, call upon him while he is near, let the wicked forsake his way, and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him, and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. And so there's a sense in which when we think about God's ways and his thoughts, that he gives that same analogy, this infinite distance from the earth to the heavens. There's a, a separation between his ways and his thoughts okay all right so this next one it can be a little bit challenging to think through okay so there may be a lot of verses that may come to mind like okay how does this work so it may it's fine to kind of think through talk through maybe questions that we have so this next one is that god is unchangeable right or the idea of immutable right he's unchangeable so he's unchanging in his being, perfections, purposes, promises. Yet God does act and feel emotions. He acts and feels differently in response to or in the context of different situations. All right. And so let's talk about, well, let's look at some of the scriptural support and then some of the objections. We <coughs> so you have it very clearly in Malachi 3.6. For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore you, O sons of Jacob are not consumed. What's the connection there? Because he's unchanging, what? He doesn't consume. He doesn't consume, right? And so, and that,
1: the Yeah, that's the relationship to covenant.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: That and will never wipe out Abraham's seed.
0: And like, the opposite would be, if he were changing, right? And there may come a time at which they exhaust God's patience or he, they he's tired of keeping his covenant right so that's kind of looking at it through the opposite what if he were to be a changing so in that covenant um, we also see um, oh yeah James so New Testament James 1:17 every good thing given every good thing given, every good thing given and every perfect gift is from above it's a different version that I'm memorizing uh, coming down from the father of lights with whom there is no variation or shifting shadow okay. so we see this, Do you th- can you guys think of other places or passages where you can think of um, God speaking to the fact that he's unchanging or no variation. You mentioned his covenant so it made me think about um, sometimes he makes promises right and those promises if, if God were um, changing would we be able to trust in those so uh, I'm thinking of the after the flood when God makes his covenant with the, the rainbow um, So he says, this is in Genesis 8. uh, The Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man, for the intentions of man's heart is evil from his youth. Neither will I ever again strike down every living creature as I have done. While the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night shall not cease. So there's not only times at which he says that he won't change, but he even makes promises that he will keep these covenants. Okay. Okay. So, one of the things that we can talk about with him being unchanging is like, well, how does how do you ex- explain things like um, some of these passages? So, what if he repents? So in Genesis six six or in Jonah three ten. Um, let's let's look those up. So, someone want to find Genesis six six? mean, volunteers? We can get Genesis six six. Get it. You get it, and then Jonah three ten. I'm Have Jonah three ten. I know someone can find it. It's in the book. It's in the Old Testament. It's a hint. It's a little book. Noah wants to get. It. Thanks, Noah. So he's gonna get Jonah three ten. Okay. So what's uh, what's Genesis 6.6? six.
1: And the Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth and it grieved him to his heart.
0: Okay. And then what about Jonah 3.10?
1: When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and
2: he did not do it.
0: Yeah. And so... That term sometimes it's translated as repent. Um, it's like this extreme displeasure. Um, sometimes it's translated uh, regretted, or sometimes it's comforted. It's got it's got it's a strange uh, re- relented relief. Sorry. Um, so there's the, there's different variations in the way in which right. And so what do you think it's, it's what is what is it really meant to say? Is that that he was think he was one way. And then he cha- completely changed. I mean, what's the point of that version in six, 6? He saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth. Every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord regretted or repented. Right. What's what's the, the meaning of that?
1: I think there's a, a sense where, like, God does not desire the death of the wicked. There's certain things that He decrees that He doesn't necessarily mm-hmm. like, if that yeah. makes sense. Yeah. Like, I don't think He enjoyed crucifying His Son. Mm-hmm. Um, in the same way, He saw the evil, and yes, it is what He decreed, but He was very grieved.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah.
3: I think when we hear the word regret, it makes us think of "I wish I hadn't done that." Mm-hmm. I think that's kind of challenging with the word. Yeah. And I think I did. God never says "I wish I hadn't done that." Mm-hmm. But at the same time, I'm, I'm reading through First Samuel, First Samuel 15. I actually, just studied this two weeks ago. It says in the same chapter that he regrets having made Saul king, and then it says that God should not regret that yet have a, he's not like a man. And then it says again he regrets having made Saul king <laughs> in the same chapter. Right. And uh, as researching it, one writer says a key hermeneutical principle here that, that the writer's not an idiot. Right. So he's not like he didn't know what he was writing. Mm-hmm. So there's a sense where he regrets. that he he said that Saul would be a bad king mm-hmm. from the very beginning, so he knew it was going to happen. Mm-hmm. But that didn't mean that it was any less sad or <laughs> um, negative when he did mm-hmm. evil things. Yeah. In that sense, God re- regrets it, even though he knew it was going to happen. Mm-hmm. And just kind of under his broader control, mm-hmm. but he doesn't say, "I wish I hadn't done that." Yeah, it wasn't a mistake that he, yeah, acted in that way that he made Saul king.
0: Yeah, I think just, and in general, when you talk about you know death, right? That's a part of what he decreed as the his judgment for sin, but um, you know takes no pleasure in death and sin and disease, and so there's a sense in which. You can, you know, decree it, plan it, it's a part of your plan, but it's something that is not something that you take great joy in or delight in. There's, there's a difference in it, your affectations. Your um, and so when you think about that idea, um, how does that affect like the way you think about, you know, God's sovereignty and his plans when you think about him being unchanging, never changing in regards to his heart, his mind, his plan towards mankind as you see when you read these passages about the wickedness of man and the flood or the wickedness of Saul. I think one thing um, is that there's a reason for, there's a plan, there's a purpose behind uh, that it's not I think one thing that it helps to secure in me is that um, kind of a caricature of God that people often use when mocking is he just keeps coming up with new plans. Something didn't work out, right? It didn't go the way he wanted. So now he has to come up with something new. And so, this kind of understanding that, no, God has planned and ordained everything from the beginning. And as he's. working and interacting with man in those different places in time and history. um, The fact that he's grieved and the fact that he has great sorrow over the actions and the thoughts and the attentions of the man's heart doesn't change the fact that that's a part of his ultimate plan. And I think the cross is usually the best place to go to think about um, how that works out. (coughs) Any other things about him being... Right. What, there's a question there. What would it be like? How, how would it be different if if uh, God were not unchanging?
3: If he weren't unchanging, we couldn't really know him or know how to follow him or how to please him or to rest in him. We could never actually know what he was going to do mm-hmm. or say or be like. Mm-hmm. And so him being unchanging allows us to a degree, because he's mm-hmm. ultimately beyond us, but to, to know him in a very real way, and that gives us stability in our walk with him because we know what he expects and who he is. Mm-hmm. I think a lot of times as Christians, we can struggle with having us st- with instability, we're not sure, mm-hmm. like, is God pleased with me or not. We can actually know those things mm-hmm. because his character doesn't change.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: <coughs> yeah, there's a definite peace and security. Um, I wanted one great analogy, and, and it was that I've heard that, that reminds me of that relates to um, your role as maybe as parenting more than, being, but I, I would apply it to God as well. Is that there's some studies um, done about observing kids when they go out into a new playground, right? They have a new area play area, and one of the first things they do is they they search out the boundaries of that playground, and if it's a fence or um, you know, wooden fence, chain link fence, and oftentimes they'll push against it, you know, rub up against it, and they're kind of searching for. Is this? They, the researchers have kind of concluded that, um, and they they looked at different scenarios, right? And in, in places where it was like real weak, wobbly, you know, and it would kind of fall over or break, the the children would often retreat and play very close to, say, the building or the school, and they wouldn't really explore those outer regions of the, the playground, um, whereas if it were very sturdy, right, the children were roaming, playing all without. And they said that they wanted to know if the place in which they were staying, if the boundaries would stay firm and in place, and that either create a sense of fear or sense of freedom, kind of that same way that as a parent or even sense of when you're following God. If there's that certainty, then there's a freedom that comes with that. There's a certain fear that comes in unknowing. but uh, So that kind of leads us into the next one, which is kind of different from other beliefs in and, and uh, different other, other religion, religions that God is personal. Okay, God is personal. So he is a person. He's all wise, infinite, eternal, changeless. And we're not to think of him as an impersonal force. He is spirit, yet he has all the elements of personality. Intellect, feelings, and will. Okay. And so scripturally we have Genesis one twenty six. Okay, let's read through that. Cole, you got that one? Let us make man in our image according to our likeness, and let them rule over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the sky, and over the cattle, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. Yeah. So if we think about man being a person and having intellect and will and those type of things, and we're made in the image of God, right? The reasoning is that God is of a higher degree uh, than us, not of a lower degree. Not, he's not a just a force, but he also has a higher mind, a higher intellect, and so on. So this is different from, for example, um, just this belief that um, God is just... Sets the universe in motion, right? And is off, you know, letting us to you know, fend for ourselves. Um, but we can also communicate with Him. I think that that affects, affects our prayer life uh, as well. So then we kind of look at, how did I skip? I at what page are we on there? There we are. Yes. Okay. Seven and eight. I almost, I almost skipped one. That not good. So I think this, this independent, God does not need us or... The rest of creation for anything? Where have you maybe heard some differing, um, different theological things that can come about? If we don't have God as independent, um, how would that affect our view maybe of creation? I could see it seeming like he, he needs us. Yeah. Yeah. Not necessarily creation or even salvation, right? Why did God save? Because He needs needs people to fill heaven or sometimes you'll hear when someone passed away, God needed them, right? Mm-hmm. God needed another another angel. another angel, right? And so there's, there's a sense in which um, man is meant to fulfill God in some way, right? And it kind of also translates kind of that, the cultural kind of romanticism of relationships. Relationships are about uh, you, I need you. It's not about giving in the relationship, it's about you're going to fulfill some need. So that's kind of like, it seeps into a lot of different things with, sometimes without realizing it. It's this God that's, his love is something where it's so wonderful because we're we're fulfilling something that's missing in God. So let's look at, there's a couple, there's a few verses here. So Psalm 50, 10 through 12. Okay. It's got this one. Go for it.
2: For every beast of the forest is mine, the cattle on a thousand hills. I know every bird of the mountains, and everything that moves in the field is mine. If I were hungry, I would not tell you, for the world is mine, and all it contains.
0: Yeah. Three times we see, right? Everything is his, right? So we could describe him as the owner, right? the creator and the owner of everything John 17 5 now father glorify me together with yourself with the glory which I had with you before the world was so how does that kind of speak to God's being independent he existed before any of us was created Mm -hmm. so he doesn't need it to exist yeah, and not just yeah, and not just he existed, but he, Jesus is saying what that they um, they were glorified already, right? God didn't need need man to glorify him. Um, also, it's it, it's a good and um, when you think about God's independence, it's a thing. It's a good to talk about this, the doctrine of the Trinity, that God can relate to Himself and express the love that He has towards Father to Son, Son to Father, Holy Spirit. Right? They can glorify one another in that relationship before the world existed. And then, again, just later on in that same chapter, John seventeen twenty four, Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, be with me where I am, so that they may see my glory which you have given me, for you love me before the foundation of the world. So this kind of includes us, and what's his what's his prayer? What's his heart for for the believers?
1: Yeah, you know, I, I think about um, this would be pretty stunning in in a culture that worships idols. Um, one thing, uh, like Isaiah 44:12, says the ironsmith takes a cutting tool and works it over the coals. He fashions it with hammers and works it with a strong arm. He begins hungry and his strength fails. He drinks no water and is faint. The carpenter stretches a line. He marks out a pencil. He shapes it with planes and marks it with a compass. He shapes it into a figure of a man with the beauty of a man to dwell in a house. He cuts down cedars, he chooses a cypress tree or an oak and lets it grow strong among the trees of the forest. He plants a cedar and the rain nourishes it, then it becomes fuel for a man. He takes part of it and warms himself, he kindles a fire and bakes bread. And he makes a god and worships it, he makes it an idol and falls down before it. Half of it he burns over the fire, over half of it he eats meat, he roasts it and is satisfied. And so, and then it goes on to say, and then he prays to it and says, deliver me, for you are my God. And so there's this idea that when he makes it and then he serves it, and a lot of these idols need the worship of men mm-hmm. to have their power or whatever. Like you have to feed it, you mm-hmm. have to give it food, you have to give it the sacrifice. And mm-hmm. the Lord makes it clear, like you need a sacrifice to me, but I don't really need it.
0: Right, right. <laughs>
1: So I guess a lot of it is he—he he, he can't be controlled, he can't be bribed, he can't be obligated.
0: Yeah. Yeah, and a lot of these uh, kind of go go hand in hand with, with one another. the other. So that reminds me. So in the relevance, we talked about a little bit already that you know it means that he doesn't does not need and could not need, he never needs anything. All right. So if we think about his motivation behind. Creation behind salvation, behind heaven and hell, any of those things—they're not not a need. Um, but He's different. Um, so we talked about quantitatively, right? So in terms of His infinite measure, but He's also qualitatively, right? Just different. He's different than us. And um, right, that right? Why? Why does He do everything? So. He, we're going to get into kind of his moral attributes here and look at what has he revealed to us. Um, he's decided to share his love and mercy with us, right? He decided to make us, right? Why, why did he do that? If he didn't need us, right? He's infinite. He's already uh, filled with glory before the creation of the world, before it ever ever existed. And so, uh, before we go into that, too, I was going to. Kind of plug to you if you're kind of thinking through things. We have a lot of books out in the resource center. One I'm reading again is The Attributes of God, and uh, it's a helpful one. It he kind of breaks down each one and just has a it's you could almost do it as a devotional. There's maybe uh, five to ten pages on just different topics. So, the foreknowledge of God, the sovereignty of God, the decrees of God, and you can kind of go through. There's a little bit more scriptural support, a little bit more kind of arguing through the implications. Um, what you could do. Um, any other, do you guys have any other recommendations? Uh, good books on attributes.
1: College of the Holy by w. Tozer. By Tozer.
0: That, Was that the one we quoted at the beginning, I think? I think
1: so.
3: Knowing God by Packer.
0: <coughs> I think we have both of them out there. It's my plug. So, and I think in that first section too, um, just one thing I was thinking about just is that um, we often talk about we, we want to have a high view of God and I think we always need to approach, approach it understanding that you know, if man's here and God's revealing himself to us and we have a conception of God put him in the cloud and he's he's always you know, much further above whatever we, we have here And so just always understanding that whatever my view of God is, it's less than what he actually is. Uh, It's impossible for us to conceive of and understand God. And so he is often then kind of pulling through scripture and through his revelation, broadening and deepening. Right. And so many times you'll see in the New Testament, see where the authors are writing, you know, Explaining and talking about the theology of who God is, and they'll stop and say, oh, the depth and the riches of the wisdom and the knowledge of God, and they're just overwhelmed by this sense in which that God is so much greater than beyond us. And I think the other thing is that as that, our goal ought to be that as that gap, right, as that gap grows and grows and grows, it magnifies, right, the distance that's filled, right? So that distance is filled by Christ that Christ comes and becomes a man, that fact that he became a man and was God, right? that distance did to bring as well our sinfulness, as that gap grows bigger and bigger, it h- helps us to understand how great indeed is his, his love and his mercy, his compassion to be able to bring his creation into relationship with him. So that's kind of, we're going to move to uh, what we call maybe his ethical or his moral attributes. So I think we're on page nine now, okay, the first of which is his holiness, his holiness, and so I think when I was, um, when I first heard holiness, or when I first heard that word, I would often maybe confuse it a little bit with maybe his, um, his righteousness, um, or the fact that he always does what's right, okay, so he's holy because he does what's right, but, Let's, let's look a little bit closer at kind of what that means. So, in one real sense, it talks a lot about, it means that he's distinct or different from everything else, right? There's everything in creation, all created things, and then there's God who's distinct, different, or holy, set apart from everything else. He di- he's the only one that is infinitely above. He's the only one that has no creator. So, everything else other than God has been created. He's the only one who is self-sustaining. Everything apart from God is sustained and held up by God. So he also has what we would call moral holiness in that he is unswervingly abides by his nature and his character. So every other being um, is uh, like, and we think about man, his his fallen nature. He's unable to be morally holy in any of our, our characteristics. So he's set apart from all that's sinful, profane, impure, unclean. Everything is perfect and set above all other things. So we've got many times in scripture we talk about God is holy. 1 Samuel 2 2. So I'm going to read that one.
2: There is no one holy like the Lord. Indeed, there is no one besides me. Nor is there any
0: rosh like our God. Yeah, We get two things there, right? We get that he's holy and that there's no one else that's holy like him. And then Isaiah 6.3. And one called out to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. Yeah. What is the significance? Why? Why doesn't he just say, "Holy is the Lord of hosts"? Why is he saying it, or why didn't he say, "Holy, holy"? What's the significance of this? You can read the notes. If maybe you know. I uh, think am I right in saying that like that it, when they repeat it, it's like to a greater degree, right? And that uh, we have like the different superlatives, so I'm you might be fast, faster, fastest, in a sense, right? You've got one degree that describes you, and then a greater degree, and then the, the uttermost, right? And so, in a sense, not as only is he holy, but or set apart. He's holy, holy, holier than everything else, and or holy, holy, holy. He's the holiest. And I thought that's kind of significant. RC scroll brings out that that's that's only that's the only characteristic of which God is described three three times. There's it's never God is love, 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 or mercy, mercy, mercy. And when when did this happen? What's the context here? In Isaiah, what's going on? May remember.
1: In the year King Uzziah died.
0: Yeah, he has this vision. Let's go. Let's read maybe a few more verses here. Flip back. We kind of looked at Isaiah fifty-five. So, Isaiah six. We're also preparing your hearts. We're singing holy, holy, holy today. Yes, divinely. Um, So, yeah. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face, I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar, and touched my mouth, and said, Behold, this has touched your lips, your guilt is taken away, and your sin is atoned for. So you kind of can see those elements. God is holy far, far above, and Isaiah recognizes his own wickedness and sinfulness in the presence of God's holiness. And then at the same time, we see God reaching out through the seraphim to atone for and take away his guilt. So let's later, there's a lot of passages in Isaiah. Let's look at this one. To whom then will you liken me? that I would be his equal, says the Holy One. Lift up your eyes on high and see who has created these stars. The one who leads forth their host by number, he calls them all by name because of the greatness of his might and the strength of his power, not one of them is missing. How does that have to do with holiness? are some things you can see that points to his holiness.
3: Means set apart and he set apart in terms of his might, strength and mm-hmm. his power so it's not just in terms of like moral purity it's set apart in terms right. of grandeur
0: yeah yeah and we see he kind of gives the specifics of that <coughs> greatness and power and might in the second part and at the very beginning he's saying because of this right who can you compare me with the obvious answer no one right there's no no one that can compare. And then when he gives those, to whom can you compare, or who will you liken me? So again, that's it's it's difficult to try and describe God when there's no one else that's like Him. So that that's the kind of part where He has to kind of reveal things to us, in which we have no real context other than God. It's the the singular case in that way. Okay, so we've got He is holy. God
2: let's go I I love questions Um, so like what you were talking about where it says Mm threefold like the reason that's the only attribute where that is stated that way that's because like the sole reason for that is because holy God's holiness makes him unlike any other and so like that's the one attribute that like is most important in the distinguishes. He's infinitely above his creation. And, like, he's the creator and sustainer. And he is um, distinct and different from everything else. Mm-hmm. And, so, and he's above everything else. So, it's like, I guess I'm trying to understand is that why it stated holy, 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 like threefold? And none of the other attributes are.
0: You know, um, I don't know that I could say or that we know specifically, like, why. Why did God choose to reveal holy? holy or why did the prophet say holy, holy, holy? As like, as a part to the other ones, we just I think the main point was like you're saying, the emphasis of when He uses that holy, holy, holy. Like at that point, He's revealing that it's as far the, as far as possible as Him being holy, and it's creating that to the greatest degree or to the greatest magnitude possible. He is holy, and I think. When we look at the one thing that I think you mentioned, you said a couple of words that were like, I don't know if you said like his most important, but I I don't know that necessarily any of his attributes or characteristics are necessarily more or less important. They each one kind of describes God and complements maybe one another. But his holiness does affect, in a sense, all the other attributes. Because in every possible way in which God is righteous, in which God is loving, and God which God is merciful, he's holy in perfection, and he's holy in his set-apartness in that. He's unique from all other things, all created in those, in those ways as well.
2: So how would you describe holy, then, like, without
0: defect? Or without <coughs> fault? Um, one synonym I would give is more like not necessarily purity but like otherly or or uniqueness in the sense that God there's there's all created things that we witness and God is holy or set apart or different than all of the creation and he's different in many ways he's holy in that he's the only one who is perfectly righteous the only one who is perfectly merciful or just or mighty, and powerful. And so that holiness does describe and complements those attributes as well. But I wouldn't necessarily say it means that we have a list of characteristics and he perfectly maintains that list without failing. I mean, it does mean (laughs) that, but I think it means more than. It's just that that list is so much separated from any others. Yeah.
3: I think the challenge is that we oftentimes talk about Holiness for us, primarily in terms of moral mm-hmm. holiness, mm-hmm. although that, that actually doesn't doesn't accurately describe holiness for us either. In the Bible was right. more than that. It's not just right. moral purity. It's not just not sinning. I think the challenge is when we talk about personal holiness being almost exclusively moral holiness, and mm-hmm. we when we hear that God's holy, we think well, He's morally holy. Mm-hmm. It's actually it's more than that. Yeah, I, I think that's where I think the, kind of the, the dissonance comes in. The so
0: challenge. maybe like think about the. Um, the how the nation of Israel right was to be set apart and different and unique from all the other nations of the world. Um, and God, you know, also says, you shall be holy, for I am holy. Like you shall be set apart, distinct, like for me, for my purposes. Um, there's a sense in which it's not just the moral holiness, but there's the set apart, devoted to different from sense sense of the word of holiness.
1: Yeah, I think another thing, too, um, I think the human tendency that we have is to project humanity upon God. Mm-hmm. And so we often judge God by our sense of morality, mm-hmm. our sense of love, and I think even in the ancient Near East, idolatry, these were basically superhumans. Mm-hmm. There wasn't that big of a difference between mm-hmm humanity and the gods. It's just improved, more, more powerful. Humans. Mm-hmm. Um, but what holiness makes it very clear is that there's really this infinite gap between humanity and God. God is not a projection of us. We're more of a projection mm-hmm. of him. And the information flows one way. Mm-hmm. Because he's so far above us, we can't know him by knowing ourselves. We can only know him by him choosing to reveal himself mm-hmm. to us. And so that's why I like holiness and being distinct, no one like him, um, you know, he, he's above you is mm-hmm. it's kinda of like the bedrock for even understanding God to begin with, that we have to start with him and understand ourselves in light of him, not understand ourselves and project ourselves upon him, which is what many humans do in different yeah. religions.
0: Yeah.
3: So also if you think about holiness in that way, then God drawing near, particularly in Jesus, yeah. like becomes even more radical and mind blowing yeah. because, the gap so, is... because the gap's so huge, and you somehow bridge that gap in the way that He did, mm-hmm. is, is pretty incredible. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, it really, I think, one of the great things is that it's so difficult to comprehend the magnitude of what the incarnation <coughs> means, to think about. That holy God who is infinitely far in separation from us, being born as a baby and being made in the flesh. So and walking among, you know, man. And so that how infinite not just the ability to span that distance um, in terms of morality and power and all of his perfections. Yeah. But it helps to it helps to guard against just seeing Jesus as he was a pretty good pretty good guy, right? He was he was the best human. Right? Well, that's true, but not just a little bit better than everybody else. Makes sense.
1: Yeah. I don't and I think even we judge God by our not we, but our culture judges God by their own morality.
0: hmm And I think I think when you talk about that, it just your mindset when you go to the scriptures or when you're praying to try and understand who God is like or I think a lot of times it's when we study a passage and we're like "Ah, I don't know about it seems weird the way that you're acting here God whether it's judgment in the Old Testament or different things and so I've got a conception a moral conception in my mind that I'm trying to project and say God doesn't seem to be fitting what I think is right and oftentimes you know, he doesn't fit what I think, and that's because I'm so far below. And it's not that he's not meeting my standards, that my standard is not the correct standard. And so, like, knowing that the, his holiness is... I think uh, there's a... I thought um, you think about the story of when the... They they had lost the Ark of God, and then they were bringing it back on a cart, right? And it... it uh, looks like it's gonna fall and Uzzah reaches out his hand to steady it and he struck dead. Like there's a sense in which Uzzah had no idea like what he was dealing with, you know, like the holiness of how they were mistreating and somehow the gap between him and the holiness of the Ark was, he thought it was much less than what, what it actually was. And so there's times in which we're reminded of that in scripture.
3: Sometimes I think we can see in Scripture God acting a way, and we're like, I don't understand how that fits with what He does here, mm-hmm. and so we want to try to figure out how does God work in these different spheres like that. Mm-hmm. I think that's a, a, a appropriate. We want to understand God yeah. more fully. Yeah. That's different than saying that's immoral or that's unjust, and we sit in judgment of God. Right. One is the attitude of trying to understand the fullness of God in His attitudes to the degree that mm-hmm. we can in His actions. Mm-hmm. Another is sitting in judgment of God, and that's where things will. Go all wrong with as soon as
0: we sit in judgment. Then obviously we're mm-hmm. putting ourselves in the place of right God. Yeah. So like that that happen, that can often happen in Bible study. If you're running into the case and it, like that attitude of instead of saying, well, I, it seems like the Scripture says this, but I don't think that's right. So it must say something else. Uh-huh. Versus what does this mean? The fact that it actually does say this. How how does should that affect and shape? How do I understand who God is and so just having that difference in attitude of saying it's OK and we should expect if God's so holy and different than us, we should expect that there's going to be times in which, wow, this is really different than, than I could conceive of or I would expect. But those are oftentimes uh, I think, you know, it's really a great thing when you find passages when you don't doesn't make sense and you don't understand because it's a time where you're going to learn that, oh, I didn't understand what the scripture was saying, so you learn what it actually saying, or you did understand what it was saying and it's challenging our view and our understanding of who God is, and so it's going to be changed in that way. And I think for all of us, you know, the the longer we, we know God, it's going to those are going to become more difficult. We'll have a more deeply rooted, right? So to constantly be practicing the willing to, you know, change to fit the scriptures. So that's a good place to stop. We'll pick up there next time. We're getting ready to get into God's love. So I'll pray for us. Lord, thank you for your infinite um, ability to go and span the distance between your perfect, uh, holy uh, perfections and to come and to become a man and to, to relate to your creation and the man who's made your image. Pray that for each of us, as we continue to grow to know you, that you would stretch our minds and our hearts to know you more fully, to look to your word and to trust your Holy Spirit to reveal what we cannot and could not ever uh, discover on our own, but that we need you to reveal to us of who you are, and that we may always leave in wonder of you and in worship of you. In your name, amen.